Welcome to Farm Discipleship. This week, we are glad to share with you a great conversation we had with Ted Hebert. Ted is Professor of Hebrew Bible, or Old Testament, at McCormick Theological Seminary. A leading scholar among theological educators, he has done groundbreaking work in the study of Genesis and is author of The Yahwist's Landscape, Nature and Religion in Early Israel. Another voice in the conversation will be that of Abby Mohawk, our colleague and farm mate. Her own scholarship has been greatly influenced by Ted's teaching from when she was a student in his class and, of course, now she serves as one of their adjunct professors. Ted is married to Paula Sharp Hebert. Paula is also a college professor in biblical studies, and we look forward to the possibility of talking to her someday. Ted and Paula have two children, Nicholas and Mary Claire, and a grandson named Theo. In this episode, we're going to hear about three things. One, the similarities between living in biblical days, in the biblical days of Iron Age Israel, and living in rural American places like Hillsboro, Kansas, especially in terms of diversity. Two, our human identity and vocation according to the earliest stories of origin in the Bible, and finally, the importance of recovering this biblical identity in order to heal our relationship with this world in which we live. We are finding these farm discipleship conversations with farmers, ministers, and scholars to be so fruitful, to really absorb their wisdom, we are going to interject some breaks in the recording for our own reflection with you and what our guests are sharing. Have a listen, and thanks for joining us on the farm. Ted, thanks for your time today. We're wondering, um, first off, did you grow up on a farm or have any relationship with a farm uh, as a child, whether it was a friend's farm or a grandparent's farm or uh, anything like that that may have influenced your formative years? So, yes. Um, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew up about as close as you could get, which is a big difference, really, I think. Um, I was born in Paraguay, uh, out in the Chaco, in a small Mennonite farming village where my parents were teaching in the, in the school for a couple of years with the Mennonite Central Committee, which is a relief and service organization. And then we moved to the U.S. when I was one. Wow. So that only, you know, influenced me in some primal way, but probably did. Mm. Um, and then we moved to Hillsborough, Kansas, which was an American small Mennonite farming village or town. Uh, Hill, uh, Hillsborough is about 2,000 people, uh, mostly a little agricultural town near which. Uh, in Kansas near Wichita. And uh, my dad was the minister there and in the Mennonite Brethren Church. And I would guess that most of his parishioners were farmers from the area, uh, including some of my relatives. And I remember um, there uh, uh, going out for a week and just hanging out on the farm. 
in doing all the chores and everything. Uh, just to, my parents wanted me just to kind of get the feeling for the farm because both of them grew up on farms. Mm. Um, and so in Kansas, it was a little rural farming community of Mennonites. That's my own background. And then we moved to uh, California going into the um, eighth grade when I was going into the eighth grade. And then during the summers when I was in high school and college, I worked on farms. Um, so what were uh, some of the things that you did? Yeah, so uh, the Mennonites in California were fruit farmers. They were on the east side. This is the east side of the San Joaquin Valley that had the water runoff from the Sierra Nevadas. Mm -hmm. So it was a dry summer, but they had all the irrigation they needed from the snow melt from the Sierras. Mm. And so they could grow fruit, which is intensive water, mm. uh, but they grew nectarines and peaches and plums and uh, mostly nectarines and peaches for packing. And so I worked in the packing sheds in the summer, wow. um, sometimes in the field sheds, the little field sheds, and sometimes in the, um, the sheds they had on their own, you mm -hmm. know, uh, uh, property. Um, so I did that a lot of summers. And then for uh, the other thing I did was one of our members of our church in Fresno um, had a, uh, a, a um, some combines. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I'm sure he was transplanted from somewhere. And um, he, he uh, had like four, five, four machines and he would harvest grain out on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley mm -hmm. the whole summer. They'd mm -hmm. harvest, these were like massive industrial farms where they'd seed them from the air. Right, wow. And, uh, and they would be like whole, uh, what do you call, sections of mm -hmm. just barley. And we'd wow. harvest barley for a month and then we'd harvest safflower for, safflower for a month. So I just drove one of these combines from seven in the morning to seven in the evening. Wow. And um, so that, so I kind of have a little feeling of the challenge that farming is, mm -hmm. um, uh, especially from the, the working fruit sheds in the, in the field and from driving the harvesters. But I do have to say that not growing up on a farm is a difference. You know, if you grew up on a farm and as a kid and you have to wake up at five and do chores, yeah. That's a different life than the one I lived, even mm -hmm. in Hillsborough, Kansas. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little soft. I'm not a real farmer. <laughs> uh, that's good. But I have to tell you, just as a footnote, when I wor was started working on the Yahweh's landscape in, um, in Jerusalem that year, we, we were in Jerusalem for a year on a sabbatical, and that's where I got to work on the Yahweh's landscape. And um, just an aside, um, uh, I wanted to work on biblical perspectives on nature. And I had kind of a, you know, theological idea about it. Like I would just look at the text and see what it thought about nature. And one of my, he was an archeologist. One of my colleagues said, no, if you, if you want to know about nature in the Bible, you have to live in it. Mm. So I got the ability to go to, uh, Jerusalem for a year. Uh -huh. And I knew within a week 
that I could never have written this book without living there. There you go. Ever. Yeah. It would have been so theoretical and theological and hypothetical. It just wouldn't, I couldn't have done it. Yeah. So, but what I was going to say was while I, while we were in Israel, um, and I was working on this and I was working on agriculture and antiquity in Iron Age Israel. And I was trying to figure out what it included. And all of a sudden it hit me that that agriculture was, was I'm jumping the gun here probably a little bit, but uh, that agriculture was exactly like the agriculture on a farm in Hillsborough, Kansas. Yeah. Oh, like I'm, say more about that. What it like, so like here, exactly yeah. that? So uh, I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit, okay. getting uh, into other stuff. But uh, so um, when I um, when I started putting to when I when I just read on what was what did what did a farm look like in Iron Age Israel? What did the ordinary Israelite uh, that's in the stories that we have in the in the Book of Genesis and Exodus, etc. What did that Israelite what did their farm look like? And it's basically mixed uh, farming. It's, it's primarily grain. Grain is the basic thing and mostly wheat, which was the same as in Kansas. Yeah. Wheat and barley, the same two things. Then that was supplemented by fruit. So like the main ones were olives and vineyards and figs and other things, but mostly olives and vineyards, but then you had concentrations. But anyway, so it was like um, cultivation of mostly grains, but with some fruit. And then you had animals. There you had sheep and goats. And um, and maybe if you were rich, you, you had a donkey to plow with, maybe you had a bull, but that would be pretty rich. Mm. Um, uh, so they so it was cultivation of grains and fruits with also herding of small flocks of animals and that's exactly what we had on my relative's farm all of a sudden it hit me this is the farm I lived on for a week in in Kansas because yeah. like one of my jobs there was to go out and bring the cows in in the evening uh -huh. you know round them up which mm -hmm. terrified terrified me. <laughs> but and I remember I came back with one missing one time, so we had to go back and find it. But um, yeah. Uh, anyway, so it really struck me that um, that there is something pretty primal about this mixed agricultural, and and I think I, I'm curious about your farm, but um, it sounds like you're doing a variety of things too, and yeah. Uh, one of those things for them was just. Uh, survival and subsistence you had to cover all your needs and um and all and so it 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 spread the risk and all of that kind of ted has already used the word primal twice in this conversation but isn't it interesting that his first year of life was on a mennonite farming village how do the landscapes in which we live shape us even when we don't think we can remember them or the landscapes from our parents, or the stories of our ancestors which are shaped by their landscapes? How many of them mention a farm? Hmm. Hmm. You know, a lot of people have thought that this farm, it was a family farm that, that I inherited, because 
I did grow up in North Texas, but this wasn't a family farm. Mm. And yet this feels like a primal landscape to me. It's a right. familiar landscape uh, because the farmland where I grew up is, is gone. Um, but, but the people that come here, it, feels, it seems to feel very familiar to them, even if they live in suburbia. Uh, and I don't know if it's because we feel connected to the stories that we've heard from our parents and grandparents mm. that had connections with farms. It seems that everyone who has come here feels at home and feels instantly connected to this place. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking that the even the stories that we tell, that we've heard, from our own family stories and obviously our biblical stories that we're thinking about with Ted on this conversation, mm -hmm. um, it seems um, we seem to identify with it. Why do you think this is an farming, food, and faith? Why do you do you think it is an important topic to incorporate into into a theological education? Yes, the, the intersection of the intersection of farming, food and faith yes um can i read a little wendell berry here you bet <laughs> absolutely okay let me give a little background on this um, um when i found out that in jerusalem that what i had was lit was literature of small-scale subsistence agriculture in the book of genesis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, my next question was, how do I talk about that in the 20, then it was the 20th century. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do I talk about it in, in, the, in our age? What language do I use to tell a modern reader, mm -hmm. what's the agricultural language? And, I, and so I hadn't been on a farm for so long and I just didn't know. And um, I think it was Ellen Bernstein, the... Um, uh, she, uh, I'm, she was in Jerusalem that year. I met her, and I think it was that year or when I got back. Uh, she entered. She started Shomer Adamah, one of the first environmental organizations in the Jewish community long ago. Now she's writing on environment, mm. but she recommended Wendell Berry to me. I think, mm. and so I started reading him. And and my real introduction to, sort of agriculture today was the unsettling of america that right. book that really totally changed my or sort of educated me yeah. about agriculture yeah. and um so i started reading him and the funny thing was i know we're getting to the yahwist but the mm -hmm. biblical writer but what if, if there's a modern writer who is has the mentality of the Yahwist of antiquity, it's Wendell Berry. Yeah, mm. agreed. There's, there's like a one-to-one -one kind of correspondence. Mm. And so I want to I'm going to read uh, just two things from him, Rodney, to answer your sure. question. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I love a good. That's a really good. Read. While we live, our bodies are moving particles of the earth, joined inextricably both to the soil and to the bodies of other living creatures. It is hardly surprising then that there should be some profound resemblance um, between our treatment of our bodies and our treatment of the earth. Mm -hmm. These are religious questions. Mm -hmm. 
obviously, for our bodies are part of the creation and they involve us in all the issues of mystery. Mm. But the questions are also agricultural, for no matter how urban our life, our bodies live by farming mm. and we come from the earth and return to it. And so we live in agriculture as we live in the flesh. Mm. Okay, that's one. I, I need to read one more. Okay. Um, okay. Um, uh, this, uh, the soil is the great connector of lives, the source and destination of all. It is the healer and restorer and resurrector mm -hmm. by which disease passes into health, age into youth, death into life. Without proper care for it, we can have no community because without proper care for it, we can have no life. Mm -hmm. So how do you get more basic than that? Right. I mean, if religion is the life we live that puts us in touch with the most fundamental realities of who we are as human beings. Um, it's, it's our connection to the soil and our connection to our food, which gives us life. Without it, we're not here. Right. So what so, do you say to people who say, what do you mean we're our bodies, of, we are moving bodies of the earth? I'm not, I'm not a piece of dirt. So can I answer that from the Bible? Absolutely. Sure. Okay, I, I, I know I keep jumping the gun, but I'm getting into the Yawas yeah, now. Yeah, sure. Very first text of the Yawas. So um, the, the Yawas, just as a quick introduction, is the oldest narrator in the Bible and uh, writes the stories of the origins of Israel in the books of Genesis, Exodus, and... Um, uh, numbers and um, um, he's one of the writers and um, he, uh, he the beginning of his narrative is the Garden of Eden story it's not the story of creation in Genesis 1 that's from a priestly group but it's this story of the Garden of Eden and and uh, the story of the Garden of Eden says something like um, on the day God made earth and heaven, and he puts earth first. Uh, and there wasn't any, there weren't any, I'm just quickly jumping, there weren't any plants in the field, and it hadn't rained on the earth, and there was no human being to till the soil. Mm -hmm. So the very first thing he says about humans is that they were farmers. And then he goes on, so before there were farmers or anything, then God made the first human being out of, and here's where my translation differs from other translations of this verse. Most of them say out of the dust of the earth. Mm -hmm. I translate, and this is the translation you see in the Common English Bible translation. Um, God made the first human out of the topsoil of arable land. Mm -hmm. So human being is made out of living the, the soil that has the most life in it. Top soil. Top right. soil. Right. And so, so let me just say this. 
according to the Bible, the oldest vision of human identity in the Bible is that we are made out of soil. That's who we are, fundamentally. So what's that Hebrew word for topsoil? So the word for arable land is Adama. Um, I mentioned Ellen Bernstein's organization, Shomre Adama. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it um, um, uh, means the land you cultivate. So in, in biblical Israel, uh, of course, you have land that's cultivable, and then you have rocky land where you uh, herd sheep and goats. And they can be contiguous, just right next to each other. So Adama is not everything, it's just the land where you can sow. And then the word afar uh, is the word for topsoil that comes before it. And my reason for translating it topsoil, if, if God is, this is very anthropomorphic God, if God is standing there and he's picking up the arable land to make the human being, that's the arable land that you see that he's touching, that's the topsoil. So it's not dead dust that he's making us out of, no matter how much we like to think that on Ash Wednesday, but it's really the richest of the soil. It's the soil that, that's part of that process of turning death into life that Wendell Berry talks about. Mm -hmm. So our identity, our oldest identity, the very earliest identity that we have as human beings, according to our scriptural tradition, is that we're made out of soil and that we are made and our vocation is then to care for the soil. That comes later in verse 15. So, it, so I would say, if someone says, what do you mean we're soil? I would say, you know, um, if you're from a religious biblical tradition, that's what the Bible says. I have some other reasons for thinking that myself. Right. Uh, but I can say that that's, that's our scriptural legacy, that that's fundamentally who we are. And it makes sense, right? Because without farmers, um, we'd all die tomorrow. Right. Sure. I mean, I had a friend at Harvard um, who used to say, there's no such thing as a post-agricultural society. Mm. I always liked that phrase. Mm. Um, and that's what the Bible is saying. Look, you guys, um, it's how you live and that's who you are. So just taking that a step further, uh, if we are biblical, if, if, if the Yahwist, the oldest biblical narrator, says that we are made out of the stuff, we are made out of Adama, and so our vocation is to be, to care for it and to be a farmer. Well, what if that's the human vocation, according to what the Bible says, then what about people who don't consider themselves to be farmers? Yeah, so I'm not. So that applies to me, that question. Um, I got to study about them rather than do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I shouldn't put that in positive terms, but one of the things I read that I, that I thought was so, and you guys know this from farming, it's hard. And, um, and um, the comparative anthropology I read about farming in antiquity around the Mediterranean was just how tough. And also from contemporary small-scale Mediterranean farming villages. 
Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say this, if there weren't farmers, I wouldn't be alive. Right. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we've diversified vocations, but in a fundamental way, I am, my existence is finally dependent on farmers. Right. And, back to, and back to Wendell Berry, who you've already referenced, he says, if you eat, yeah. you are involved in agriculture. Yep. So no, if it's simple, is that a part of our, if, and if we pay attention to where the food is from and how it was raised or grown, if it if it's come to our table out of a caring relationship versus an exploitive relationship, is that a part of our discipleship as Christians? I think it is for everybody. Ted is going to describe a little further in the conversation who the Yahwist is in his book's title, The Yahwist Landscape and why their voice is so important to the Bible and to us. But Old Testament 101, back in the day, reminds us that the name comes from the idea that there are different sources mm -hmm. for the stories in our Bible. And the Yahwist is sometimes referred to as the oldest source. It is sometimes called J. Mm -hmm. uh, in these J stories, like we see in Genesis 2, uh, which is the Garden of Eden story, God is referred to as Yahweh, hence the name, the Yahwist. We see in these stories a God who is uh, imminent, uh, right here with us, uh, even in the dirt. Uh, and there is also the very orderly priestly source that we see in Genesis 1, which is very different than the Yahwist, but it's probably about 500 years younger mm -hmm. than the Yahwist source. Yes. Um, Ted's work has been such an incredible influence on my work on mm -hmm. biblical vocation and what we're called to be as humans, and particularly in the Yahwist landscape, mm -hmm. talking about how the Yahwist, the original, the older writer of the book of Genesis, was right. probably a farmer, right? And so, um, and was looking out in onto the land and mm -hmm. saying, "This is the land that I love, and I'm writing about God that I love," and mm -hmm. and I see that in on our. Um, on our farm yep. that we are people who love God and love the land and we look out and say oh this is a connection mm -hmm. so and I'm was really <laughs> I kind of laughed when Ted brought up Wendell Berry <laughs> right and at some point he answers a question can I answer from Wendell Berry and it's then like, later he says can I answer from the Bible and I was like we cannot get away from Wendell or the Bible right and and um here on the farm as you know obviously Sarah we have Wendell kind of all over the, the farm mm -hmm. um, in our bookshelves, but also on the compost. Yes. Um, uh, that it says practice resurrection and that soil is the great connector of our lives. Right. Soil and Wendell and the Bible. Yep. All, for all of us non-farmers, I think this is a core responsibility, mm -hmm. but I have to express great guilt about that because um, that's all I can say, um, because we just go to the supermarket and sometimes don't even look where the food comes from, or if we want blueberries in the summer, you know, they're coming from Mexico or somewhere like that. Uh, I'm for local agriculture because it's more sustainable and, um, and healthier and 
and all of that. Um, uh, but it takes tons of work. And, and I remember, this is at McCormick once on Earth Day, we did a, um, a kind of a thing on food for Earth Day. And um, I, I wanted to look into where my peanut butter came from because I had peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day. Uh -huh. now, I, don't, I don't anymore now that I'm retired, I'm a little branching out, but when I went <laughs> to school, I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day. And uh, so I thought, well, let me find out where my peanut butter comes from. And so I started looking on the websites and um, could find very little about whether it was local, whether it came from Georgia, whether it was shipped in, whether, you know, all of these kind of things. And I even called the, the company. Uh, more recently, I've been doing the natural peanut butter that has nothing but peanut butter, period. Uh -huh. At least that is cool. Uh -huh. You have to stir it up and put it in the fridge. So it's a little harder, but it's great. Yes. <laughs> but, I, but this must have been another kind of peanut butter, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was Smucker's regular peanut butter or something. And I wanted to know if they got their peanuts locally. And I couldn't find out. I called and she says, well, we don't exactly have that information or it could be, or they come from all over the place or something like this. And I realized it took me like an hour. It took me an hour to figure out where my peanut butter was coming from. And I, I was kind of exhausted and I thought, this is really, this is what we're up against. The, right. the, the food industry is so industrialized and we're busy with our lives. And to really, really sort of dig in and try to buy healthy food mm -hmm. and know where our food comes from is a real challenge. It's yeah. a challenge, but what are the risks if we don't? Exactly. No, I totally get it. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. it is yeah, and people, you know, it's one more thing. And we're, we've gotten so used to everything being there on the shelf. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've just gotten, uh, another Wendell Berry quote, by the way. Yeah. He says, at one point, uh, I'll, I'll just try to do it from memory. Um, he says, more and more people are living off of the land and fewer people are thinking about it than ever before. Because we've never, there's never been a generation that's eaten as thoughtlessly mm. as we're eating. Mm. And I think that, that applies to me in, in a lot of ways too. And a lot of us that aren't involved in the farming itself. Mm. That would so, be a good thing for churches to really work on, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, so Sarah and I first met you in um, like serious theological education like formal sitting in the halls of a seminary um but some of what you're talking about here is about more informal in church church theological education but also thinking about farming as theological education mm -hmm. um and i um i'm just thinking about how what it looks like to dream about a church and a, a world in which um, we've integrated faith and food and farming. What does that look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What is theological education in the world that takes farming seriously look like? So I think this is your job. 
<laughs> Say more. <laughs> I mean, you guys are doing it right. You're you're doing this community uh, in Texas uh -huh. that's exactly saying, "Here's how we think you can do that." Mm -hmm. So, um, my best answer to that would be to come and hang out on your farm for a little while and talk to you about how do you do it. Um, I can say more about our scriptural traditions and how we've forgotten them and how we need to recover them because I think they, they fundamentally support the vision that you guys have there on your farm. I think our scriptural traditions aren't, aren't traditions that are like what, what you're doing is kind of marginal to them. What, what you're doing on your farm is absolutely central to the scriptural traditions. But how it exactly sort of works out, um, this is, to get the answer to this question, I would ask it back to you. How is it working out? Right. How do you think it's happening? Because your experience personally in doing it, I think is the real cutting edge mm -hmm. of how we do this. Right. I think another, as I've thought about this, uh, why, why have we forgotten our biblical identity? Mm. Um, and um, as religious people, that right. this is a religious question, like Barry says. Um, and I think one of the real core reasons is that, um, that, that um, religion has sort of developed a matter body a matter-spirit split in it. Yeah, say more about that. Um, so another Wendell Berry quote, one of my favorites. Um, he says, um, the split between ma matter and body uh, uh, runs like a geological fault mm -hmm. in, uh, in the Western consciousness. And he says, no matter how secular you've become, it's still true. And this kind of like geological fault that um, that we have between the spirit and matter, uh, I think, uh, gives us the, an orientation toward the world. And 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 what we've taken in religion is well, we're the spirit part, not the matter part. And even in modern scientific things with creationism and stuff, you know, liberal liberal Christians love to do this. They like to say, no, 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 God is about the spirit. It's not about the matter. And we're just giving away this whole part of existence to the secular world. And, um, and I think we've got, I think this is one big thing. We, we just don't see, we see religion as spirituality. We don't see it as living in the world. And so one thing is we've got to rebridge that huge chasm and the Old Testament does that. The New Testament starts getting a little bit influenced by Greek thought and starts splitting. Um, and so that's a real philosophical, theological thing we've got to do. And then in the more specifically, once we've done that, we have to get bridge this gap between us and our food. Mm. Those are huge chasms. Right, right. So habitual about breaking up the world that way.
And I think, I think the Yahwist gives us texts to rethink. So I think that he's so important. So are you saying that we just need to read the Bible? <laughs> One good thing. <laughs> Not just, but, it, but I mean, I, I mean, if, for me, my wish for you in your farm would be that you, and you may already have this vision, and that's probably why you're doing what you're doing, but it would be that you see yourselves as fulfilling the very core of our religious tradition of who, what our identity is as people. And, and that, that scripture could provide, could, could give you the sense that what you're creating on that farm is at the very center of scriptural, of, of the scriptural understanding of who we are as human beings in relation to God. That's, that's what I, I that's the, the bridge between, let's say, what I'm doing in biblical studies and pastors and farmers that I'd like to see happen, that they would recognize that this isn't just some new thing or something we're doing on the edge of Christianity that we have to convince other Christians about. What we have to convince other Christians about is this is who they are right in the middle of who they are. Maybe we read the Bible, but we're satisfied at the end of chapter one, where we're made in the image of God and we say, oh, good. And we kind of get sleepy because we're reading it before we go to bed. Right. And we don't dive into chapter two, which is almost perhaps like a bookend uh, that says, yes, yes, image of God, yes. And we can talk about that another day. But image of healthy topsoil. For the image of God made out of the topsoil. Exactly. Right? That those two exactly. Are connected. It's a, that it's a both and. Mm -hmm. So you can do what you want with the two images. I like to keep them separate myself, but both true. But we don't want to read one and not the other. Exactly. So I think what's happened is we have Genesis 1, and then that does two things. Number one is it confirms that we're like God and not like the rest of the world. And it gives us this exceptionalism. Now, that's not what it's meant to do. If if, if we were to have another podcast on Genesis 1, uh, I could deconstruct that theolo later theological interpretation. But, but, it, but that's the popular thing that happens is that, oh, we're like God. Right. And we love that because it gives us an exceptional place in the world. We're the only living beings like God. Mm -hmm. God. And then, we, then number one, we stop with that, like you say, and we never get to chapter two. Or... We take that lens and then we read everything and we don't even see what's in chapter two because we've already got our idea and our theology going. Chapter two, which as you, I think you've already said is actually even an older source. Exactly. It's the, it's the primal, it's the primal identity. Right. It's the old time religion. It's the old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It is. That's the second time you said primal in this interview. Primal that this is the the primal story of humans is is being made out of topsoil and the primal story of Ted Hebert is being born on a farm mm -hmm. in Paraguay. Right. Hmm. Did I use it in relation to that? <laughs> <laughs> in this section, Ted talks about uh, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and he wanted to find out 
where this food came from, and he had a difficult time so finding the source of the peanuts. And I think that's one thing that people don't really know where their food comes from these days, other than just the grocery store. But it's the trying to eat local that can be difficult for people uh, because they don't know who, where their food came from or who their farmer was uh, or where the food came from. If it came from the same county or did it come from the same state or the same country or, you know, um, knowing where your food comes from uh, gives you a better sense of or how it was grown, who grew it, what did they, what did they use in, to, you know, in the soil? Did they use herbicides? Did they use pesticides? Or did they grow organic? Um, I think people are becoming more aware of where their food comes from, who grew it, what was put onto the food, or what wasn't put onto the food. Um, and I think that's, that's key, knowing where your food comes from, who grew it, and how it was grown. So, Ted, let me ask you this. Um, how does this intersection of, of uh, farming, food, and faith inform your religion? Your faith. Your faith. Um. So, um, as I've been working on this question about who we are in the natural world, according to scriptural traditions, um, and it's, um, I've realized that, um, especially in the Old Testament, um, this was, this world was the religious world. Um, and that there wasn't another spiritual dimension that canceled this one out or that made this one less important. Um, that who we were as religious people was related to this world that we're in. Uh, my faith has gotten more this worldly. Mm -hmm. And um, I it was a little bit that way anyway, just kind of by personality or by predisposition or something. I was a little, I mean, I grew up in a, in a pretty conservative religious background where getting to the next world was the most important thing, not this world. I'm just a passing through. Right. Um, and I fought that theology kind of personally. It just seemed otherworldly. <laughs> Um, and, but, um, in, in sort of recovering these scriptural traditions that, uh, really put this world at the center of biblical religion, um, has made, I, I would say has just reinforced what was kind of a predisposition anyway. And it has, it's given me a faith that says, um, anything I think or do, um, let me put this right, at the core of what I'm thinking and doing has to be helping this world flourish and the people, all of the people in this world to flourish. That's, that's what we should be. 
Right. Mm. Mm, that's good. What are your hopes for this type of conversation, for this intersectional conversation, for this podcast? And who are some voices that you might recommend that we include in the conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about this earlier, and um, I was saying how how isolated uh, we tend to be in our endeavors. Um, I'm. Um, I'm working, my next project in the book of Genesis is the question of migration mm. in the Bible and in Genesis. And so I'm learning about this and I'm reading books. But what I'm trying to do is talk to more people, <clears throat> actually talk to more people that have different experiences of migration uh, to sort of broaden my own understanding, uh, not just by reading books in my library, but by, but that's, you know, that's the academic way of doing it. You read all the books and then you do a paper. And um, I'm kind of less interested, that's a less interesting way, or that, that you don't learn as much and you're so narrow that way. Mm. Uh, and even, you know, among like the faculty at McCormick, we can be that way about what each other's doing. Mm. Um, and so one of the hopes that I have is, and I, I don't have an immediate solution to it, but I think by interviewing, you know, different kinds of people like you're doing is a beginning part. Mm -hmm. um, even um, so, Abby, I remember the conference we did in, at Columbia mm -hmm. with getting a bunch of people together. And that was great because there were different people working at the environment from different perspectives. And so we had like, you know, two or three days together just to talk about what we're doing and how it intersected. Um, it's, it was great, but it's short. And then we don't see each other again, unless you really make an effort. I find making the effort is a lot of work. Just yeah. People are busy yeah. and I don't want to, I don't want to get in their face and, and, and inconvenience them, but I want to talk to them. Uh, so there's, a, this is complicated stuff, uh, but I, I'm totally convinced that uh, real uh, sort of learning and real enrichment and real advances and making forward progress in putting food, faith, and farming together mm -hmm. um, uh, happens best by this intersection of voices. Yeah, yeah. You know, another, as I'm thinking back to the earlier part of our conversation, when you're talking about your growing up and in, in Kansas, uh, your dad was a minister and half of his congregation probably were, were farmers or people that had a close relationship with a farm. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder how that affected his ministry and preaching. And you may not have an answer, but I just kind of, uh, uh, I wonder about that as we're having this conversation together. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And, um, you know, we all have interesting relationships with our dads and, um, 
I always thought of myself as a lot more liberal than my dad. And, um, uh, but one of the things I always thought he did well, I'm still surprised about this, is that he was a good preacher. Mm -hmm. And the reason he was a good preacher was that he spoke about people's real experience. Yeah. It wasn't about ideas as much as it was about experience. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> uh, he grew up on a farm and he, he always, he had a twin brother that was smarter than he was. Mm -hmm. And he always thought he was the dumb, the dumb brother. Right. Always had a kind of complex that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe that was one thing that made him as human as he was in his sermons. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think maybe, maybe, uh, and I'm, I hadn't thought of this question before about this, but maybe his ability to talk to people where they were, uh, had to do with being part of this kind of a community. Yeah. Um, maybe I, I don't know. I have to think about that some more. Yeah, it's something to think about. And as far it sounds like there was a humility um, in his ministry. And as we're talking about our vocation, uh, which is to be close to the soil because we're made out of it and we care for it. I mean, there is obviously a humility in humans being made from humus, uh, Adam, humanity made from Adama, earthlings made from earth. But when we start separating out matter from spirit, which is not a biblical notion, but it's a Greek thought, as you said earlier, we, we trip over things and kind of get away from who we are and who we are called to be. Yep. Mm -hmm. For me, uh, partly because I've read the Yahwist, and Yahwist is, at least in his view of the human, is humbler than the priestly writer, mm -hmm. um, made out of the soil rather than being made in God's image. Um, uh, not that we can't put them together, but I do think they're distinctive ways of looking at things. And my favorite writers like Wendell Berry and others, for them, humility is always central. Right. And, um, and I, I've come to believe, even though I'm not a farmer doing what you're doing, um, you know, Wes Jackson was a guy who would say, um, nature is the measure, not us. Right. Mm -hmm we have to do is figure out how nature works and then align our behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's, that's a, hu a humble, you know, it's like taking ourselves out of the center and putting nature back in the center and saying, if we don't, if we don't adjust our behavior to how nature works, we're going to be in big trouble. So yeah. I'm all for humility. It's a good Mennonite value too. Sometimes too, too much of a Mennonite value. <laughs> we, we're sometimes way falsely humble about stuff, but in the right way, humility to me is just one of the most core values when it comes to this topic. Yeah. Or any. That's right. Mm -hmm. So Ted, thanks for spending time with us and um, sharing a little bit about how food and farming and faith are interconnected in your work and, your work has impacted our work on the farm and we're really grateful for that connection and the ongoing 
connections that we know will, will be to come. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the conversation and blessings on your work. Thank you. Thank and you, Ted. One of the things that we are carrying with us from our conversation mm -hmm. with Ted is when he said, if everything I do is helping this world flourish, then I'm living into my scriptural vocation as a farmer. Mm -hmm. That that is our most primal human identity. Even if we're not cultivating the soil, we become farmers when we're helping the world to flourish. Mm -hmm. And that's the quote. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, because so many of us think that we're not farmers, but I think he helped us uh, understand that a little bit better um, as our vocation as farmers is much more broader than we realize. Um, and humility um, is a core value that he spent some time on towards the end of our conversation mm -hmm. time. Um, and, and the humility that the Yahwist, the oldest mm. narrator, brings to our origin stories uh, and helps us define ourselves as, as people who love and care for this particular world. So as we're trying to live into our own humble vocations uh, as farmers, uh, we're going to continue to try and get to know our own farmers. And we've been doing that some this year and have made some great friendships uh, and connections uh, with people who are growing food that we're putting on our table, and we're going to continue in that effort in, in learning uh, where our food comes from. We're not experts, but we're trying to encourage each other along the way, and um, that's what we're called to do, all of us.